Up is Down, Left is Right is sponsored by Republic of Texas Insurance, specializing in affordable medical insurance packages for both individual performance artists and group policies for theater companies. Republic of Texas Insurance can handle all your life, health, and general liability insurance needs. Check them out at www.repubtxinsurance.com backslash arts. Welcome to Up is Down, Left is Right. I am your co-host, Brian Wilson, with my tag team partner, Mona Lisa Amadar. What's up, Mona Lisa? Hello. Today, we're very fortunate to have Beto O'Byrne and Morgana Wilborn, the writer and director of Loving and Loving, now playing at Bishop Arts Theater Center through February 23rd, 2020. 2020, Morgana, Beto, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Uh, Thanks. uh, so Mona Lisa and I were very excited to have you guys on. I, I have seen the play. I saw it opening night last Friday. Mona Lisa is going to see it this weekend. It is a terrifically topical play, which can have its pitfalls, but I certainly felt that it was crafted, oh, this is going to sound so punny, in such a loving way and just made made sense of very complex issues, but also humanized them in a way that I really haven't seen in a lot of theater productions, especially things that are semi nonfiction. So, Beto, I'd love to start with you and and just talk about, you know, where this idea for the play came from. Sure. So I and my partner who helped create the uh, piece, Moropi Pepinitas, she and I are the co-founders of a producing collective and theater ensemble based in Brooklyn called Radical Evolution. And the, when we founded the company pretty quickly afterwards, we realized that what we wanted to be creating was, was stories that really told the position of people who identify as like mixed, be that biracial, multicultural, bicultural, whichever variation of that identifier you, wanted, you want to use, was the general thrust of what we wanted to create. And so when we were thinking about that, we were really wondering, well, what should we, how should we start that? And what kind of pieces should we be telling? And what kind of stories do we want to tell beyond just like personal narratives? And really quickly after that, we went to an exhibit at this photography museum in New York, and it was all of the photos of the lovings from a a photography, uh, when a photographer went to go take photos of them for a magazine while the court case was happening. And I had seen a few photos before, but I had not seen that many of the photos. There was like 50, 60 photos in the whole whole thing. And we were looking at it and I was looking at these amazing photos of this family. And I was watching also these high school kids who were there on like school trips, like going through it and talking to them and looking at them. And, you know, people who, who come from more than one like ethnic background, racial background are one of the largest growing demographics in this country. And so those kids reflected that trend. And I was kind of looking at them look at these photos and I kind of had some thoughts in my brain and I went home and I did some like research on the lovings and and shortly after that Mropi and I they came to the decision but maybe this should be the story that we start telling stories through radical evolution with really thinking about it as maybe a possible cornerstone for like the validity of people who identify as mixed at least in terms of legal status was something that really kind of started to kind of synthesize for us as well as really being able to use this story to talk about this experience in a modern context as well because we have several pieces now in our in our body of work that are dealing with history and with each of those pieces something that's really important to us is that we talk about why it's important to talk about this piece of history in this moment in time you know 
theater people kind of always ask themselves like why here and now anyways, you know, like, or at least ones that are thinking critically about why they're doing the work they're doing. But for us, we kind of were thinking about that even more so because we were talking about pieces and stories of, from history. So why did, was it important to us to do that now? And that's kind of where the, the dual narratives of the play came from, both telling the history of the Lovings during this court drama, as well as what does it mean to identify this way, to be somebody who comes from blended families or multiracial, multiethnic families now. I'm curious, once you brought in actors to say the lines, how, how did that evolve? Or what, what effect did it have in terms of your changes that you made in the script? Yeah, so um, we are, as I mentioned, we are a producing collective and an ensemble that uses ensemble techniques uh, through our creative process. So actors are involved really early on. Uh, really, we tried to have actors, directors, and designers involved really early on. We feel like all three of those are really, really important to our personal like creative process. Um, and some of the really interesting things that kind of came out really became really the um, the mundane elements of the show, if you will, just in terms of like the relationship between Richard and Mildred and mm. having us have the character of Maya, like as she is envisioning what it must have been like for them to live their daily life, you know? There's a lot of, of material that's out there. Well, there's not a lot of material about the Lovings, but there's material out there that deals with specifically like the court case and the public elements of who they are. But there's very little about, you know, how they managed to live their lives, you know, and what it must have been like for this like 10 years of time for them. And so that was really, really useful to have um, actors kind of embodying that. There's several moments in the play that we just like watch the lovings like living and a lot of the gestures of that that are at least written in the script uh, come from actors just kind of playing with those moments and coming mm -hmm. up with some ideas. And then the character of Maya too, who is a character who went through lots and lots of iterations of like who she should be or who they should be and how they interact in the world and why they're playing the different characters that they play and what does that mean? All of that really came from several really amazing artists who brought her to life in, in various different phases of, of the work. Morgana, tell me about, tell us about, you know, your first reaction when you got the script and, and how your kind of creative artistic direction kind of came out of that. Yeah, when I first read the piece, I fell in love. <laughs> Especially the fact of, number one, the lovings. You know, I followed their story through my own identity research throughout my life. So it was so beautiful to see a script about it finally, because we had seen the movies and the documentaries, but to actually see it on stage, I'm like, somebody's written about this. And the other element that Merope and Beto bring to this piece is that you get to do local interviews. So at first I was like, who are all these characters? Like, what are all these people and these questions? And then when I reread it, I was like, these are interviews that you get to capture. And they're from biracial people. So not only like, of course, did I fall in love seeing the intimate backstory of the lovings that 
uh, Beto and Maropi just so thoughtfully created based on their research and, and just imagine based on um, all of the things that they looked into in their imagery, their interviews, and what they learned about them and just creating this marriage. I think that what's, that is what's missing when we look at the movies. And I got a lot of feedback from audience members that was like, oh my God, we got to see them as like actual people. And that's how it was when I first read the play. I fell in love with these two individuals, Mildred and Richard. And then especially this character of Maya, who I immediately saw myself in. <laughs> and like, oh my God, this person is me. So um, yeah, it was an instant falling in love. It is, it has uh, Maya turning into all these different characters, but the way that Beto Amaropi set you up for that, you know, it's easy to read and outline for it to be easily conveyed on stage. So it, it was just multiple things to really like about the story and the script. And yeah, it was nice that all audience members could initially see that, you know, when they interacted with the play and production. Once you were in the uh, process of casting the play, what were you looking at, looking for, and, and thinking about when you brought in actors to audition for it? Yeah, so the main thing uh, I wanted to do is be respectful to a vision uh, that Beto and Maropi had. So mm -hmm. I gave them my notes on how I wanted my audition notice to be. And we both kind of, all three of us looked at it and everything to make sure it, you know, still ran true to their original vision. But they did allow for me to take the character of Maya, which is written as cis female, biracial, mm -hmm. um, to open it up to somebody who's non-binary and uh, non-gender conforming. And when Beto and Maropi had, <laughs> before I could even, you know, say anything, because I immediately, if it wasn't myself, imagine my friend Colby Calhoun to play the role, they said it out loud. And I was just so excited because it creates another level and layer to uh -huh. uh, identity, right? And so, um, which, which creates the story of the lovings to mean something deeper, right, for all of us. So when I went into auditions, I, we know, of course, we wanted to have Mildred as a cis black woman. Mm -hmm. And um, we wanted Richard as a cis white straight male, right? Or, or, you know, he has to play as such. My actor is actually uh, queer <laughs> for my for uh, Richard, but he we, we needed that depiction. But everybody who auditioned were on various forms of identity. Not everybody who auditioned for Mildred was necessarily cis female, and not mm -hmm. everybody who auditioned for Richard was cis male. And same for Maya. I still want to create an open space for them yeah. to be seen, uh, for everybody to just be seen and represented and to read. And so it was also a learning, cause I didn't, you know, wasn't sure who would come through the door. And right. even though they saw the audition notice, they were brave enough to come in and represent themselves. And to me, that was important. You know, I wasn't going to be like, well, did you read the notice? Cause mm -hmm. that's the main thing is how are we creating 
inclusive um, spaces where people can show up for themselves, right? And many of the people said, I don't know what you're looking for, Morgana, but I just want to read. And I, when I saw this notice, this seems so interesting to me, and I would like to read for Richard, or I would like to read for Mildred. And I was like, you go for it. Let's do it. For us, you know, we ended up with three powerful actors, Camille Monet, who played Mildred Loving, who is a cis a straight black woman. And then I have DR Man Hansen, who is Richard Loving, who is a cis queer white male. And then I have Colby Calhoun, who is a biracial black and white non-binary person who, and all three bring so much to the table and brought their different experiences of either being married or gay or straight or non-gender conforming to this story so that we could understand the impact of the lovings and why the story of the lovings is important and why these people as whole individuals are important. Something that fascinated me in watching the show is the tie-in between the individual and the universal. You know, we open with the interviews of, of the folks that you interviewed about their identity and who they are but very quickly it ties into how society views them. And then we get this wonderful and very personal story of the lovings. This, we, we don't see what you would, if you're, if you're directing a movie about this, you make it mostly, you do a few scenes in Virginia, you do a few scenes in DC, and then it's Supreme Court, Supreme Court, Supreme Court scenes, right? Because you're trying to make it into this big spectacle. But this is mostly them in their apartment. This is them living their day-to-day lives, suffering under, and this is just my interpretation, so you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, suffering under the tyranny of government, but also the tyranny of society. It's not just that you have these ridiculous government laws limiting how people can express themselves, but also the society writ large that is bringing their kind of prejudices towards these individuals. And I'm just wondering in, in kind of writing this Beto and then crafting it on the stage, Morgana, how were you thinking about those two different types of kind of tyrannies, the, 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 the oppression from the government and also the oppression of society and how you guys decided to bring that out in the story? Yeah, that's really interesting. So I guess for me personally, I don't know how much I separate those two things. So I don't know then inevitably how I, if I was separating them in the writing of the show. But I do think that, you know, that was obviously the biggest conflict of the play is that, right? Is like, how is this couple going to survive in the face of these challenges, right? And we did talk a lot about that, you know, as, for example, we talk about uh, the story of the Lovings and we talk about Richard and saying, you know, really at any point, Richard could have kind of been like, okay, you know what, this is not, I'm done. You know, like I'm out. Society wouldn't have been that bad against him. You know, like he could have gotten, figured things out and blah, blah, blah. But like the fact that, you know, both of them really chose to stick this out, like said a lot about who they were as people and what they were willing to do to keep their family together. So we definitely thought about that a lot. And then I know that I talked a lot about this with with pretty much everybody that's involved in the creative process of the show, this production and all the subsequent ones before it, um, about 
much less about it being like the society versus the government, more about the internal versus the external. Like, what is it like to exist externally in the world versus what is it like when the the front door closes and you're by yourselves and you're alone in whatever that means. If you're alone with your partner or if you're with Maya, who is sometimes just alone with their thoughts. And so like how that changes what's going on in the scenes and changes the conflicts and the challenges of the scenes. And we're going to talk about how you tried to translate that sense of oppression onto the stage. Yeah. And even with one thing that, we're lucky in having is the element of sound. With any given space, you can create the type of kind of structural oppression for them that you want to imagine. And so when thinking of like, in alignment to what Beto mentioned about the internal and external is when do we get to see the lovings feel free in themselves? And when do we get to see them just claustrophobic by the external factors that are impacting them them as individuals and their marriage and so like you see their apartment is so tiny off in this corner um and they have limited time to move and the way that the script moves they have just limited time to be free right um because it just keeps going and it i want to give the element of kind of just captivity you know until we get to the very end where there's nothing on stage and we think about when they first meet and we imagine this this bare stage this freedom to dance and love and be um, where there's nothing restricted around them and you know they can be with each other imagine a world where um, they're with each other and they're not restricted in space or just, um, you know, in these rooms with these people who have the control over their lives. And at the same time, you know, we have these different dates. I would tell a lot of my um, actors sort of like, how can I get from August 1966 to like, you know, March, whatever, you know, depending on the time. And I'm like, it's all the given circumstances. If they're in DC, what's the weather? How are your children behaving at this time? Does Richard have work? Um, you know, is Mildred pregnant at the time? And so we had those different talks. Um, but at the same time, through the speakers may be a white supremacist that comes through or through the speakers, it might be Martin Luther King. Or what is it like when they first received that message that Kennedy is shot and killed? Um, I tried to have these subtle nuances, you know, while we're in these tight spaces, just doing the routine of moving in and out of space and time, how each time they exit, each time they enter, what do they carry with them? You know, is it is it that frustration? You know, is it a loss of another job for Richard? Is it Mildred having to go through another day scared about not being able to pay the bills or feed the children or keep the children safe? So um, that's kind of like where we went through it. And just, um, with Maya as the narrator that drives this, you know, knowing through her own little research who the lovings are, but also kind of being that little girl that makes, believes everything. And so just orchestrating this world based on whatever is in her, like mom and dad or their um, grandmother's attic <laughs> to play pretend and imagine this world um, and putting it in these different spaces to figure out what would life be like. And if I could imagine how frustration would be 
maybe it would be in this space or maybe like it would be here. And so we played a lot with that. And that's why you saw these little areas come and go on the stage. What were some of the bigger challenges for y'all during rehearsal? Just some, some things where you got stuck or maybe elements of, of uh, parts of the, your, what you had envisioned before rehearsal started that then changed? The biggest thing, first we had to figure out how we we're gonna incorporate this audio of these people. We had challenges with that, just wanting to make sure that it was an example of something that I had talks with Beto and Marope, like, how did y'all record this? How did you capture that? And we had our own challenges with that. And then just making sure that everything was transcribed or it was in audio where uh, Colby could have access to it to begin to learn lines <laughs> and no mm -hmm. cues. Because with the interviews, like you have to know when they start so that Colby or a DR who plays Richard knows when their line goes on. <laughs> so a lot of that was a unique challenge that we wanted to find solutions to. Just the passage of time, Colby says out these subs subsequent dates back to back. So I'm like, ooh, how am I gonna have like Mildred and Richard go all throughout the seasons and they have yeah. all these babies? How are we gonna have babies? And Marope and Beto gave me some insight on how they did that in their first mm -hmm. production. And then I added my own little twist of certain things like, oh, okay, we can incorporate also projections for representation. We added that as a solution um, for like if Camille's letting out a blanket with toy trucks, mm -hmm. a picture of Donald or Sydney Loving comes up to represent like, oh, oh, she's playing with a little baby. <laughs> or if yeah. she takes a blanket and she rolls it up and she's shaking it, you know, people know, oh, that's Peggy. Or, you know, every time she folds different blankets, you know, she had to do laundry this week. It's a new day, new week. Or um, just even DR reading as Richard reading another section of the paper or an old life magazine to show that we're in a different year. So we use things like that. Um, and of course, uh, you know, between just accessing different types of audio, this is a audio heavy show, um, which is beautiful. Um, so we want to make sure like the Supreme Court case was um, done well and represented well. Anything with Martin Luther King um, was presented well. Um, all of the imagery, we have uh, video, we have uh, pictures, and they move in and out so fast. So just mm -hmm. getting the timing of everything um, was a beautiful challenge. And working with my uh, projection lighting artist, Michael Cleveland, we were able to really create a nice look to it that didn't lag too long, got to the point. And then the last challenge was just, you know, getting the actors to understand that even though they exist in their bodies in this day and time, they're not too far removed from the characters themselves. Camille and I, who are 30-something Black women, you know, I'm like, well, Camille, Mildred had to move a little differently, but it doesn't mean she didn't raise her voice um, in her rural country sweet way as an 18 mm -hmm. to 20 something year old. And it doesn't mean she wasn't an activist. So Camille started one way in her development of the character and then ended in a lovely way that really showed up for Mildred and her as a performer. 
And then with DR, you know, DR was like, Morgan, I really want to show up for Richard, even though, you know, I'm not a, I'm a white male, but I'm a queer white male. And I'm like, but you're also married. Richard's married. <laughs> what is that mm-hmm. like? Bring that to the table. You have dealt with oppression, I'm sure. Being, me being married to a man, what is that like? Richard is dealing with the same thing, being married to a black woman. So we had those beautiful conversations. And then with Colby, uh, the challenge of, uh, with someone who's so in still figuring out their identity of being someone who is not restricted by gender and who is biracial and thinking that Maya seems so definitive. I'm like, Maya's not definitive. Maya is still, um, she she has these wonderful moments that arise where she gets to a point of self-love and learning more about her identity and where she wants to go forward. But even with the interviews, we can evolve over and over and over again. And um, it's it's beautiful. And we reach that, once we reach that level of vulnerability and understanding for each of the actors, you know, we started to see these beautiful moments on stage that they truly took ownership in. I think, you know, you mentioned the amount of music in the, in the show and, and that it ends with a dance. I'm kind of wondering how much the idea of those types of artistic expression, as well as this being a theater show in and of itself, how much of that is an expression and a quest for freedom? How much of that is built into your and Beto's kind of artistic expression, but also these trying to express these individuals' desire for that? And that 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 idea of dance and that idea of song is is a passionate expression of that. Does that does that fit in with with the both of your artistic vision for what you were trying to do here, or did it just kind of evolve naturally and kind of crafting the show? Well, it definitely evolved the ending moment, which, like, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> happens uh, at the end. I'm not going to say exactly how it happens. We're not going to go that deep, um, but I'll say that. It, it came about pretty naturally. It actually kind of came while I was like walking down the street and um, listening to a very particular Sam Cooke song and listening to the lyrics of it. And I was like, oh, I think I have the idea of how this like last moment can be. And then we tried it a couple of times in a couple of different ways. And it really just kind of like felt like the right idea of what it means to I don't know, like what it means to like celebrate struggle, I think was like a big thing, you know, Um, to celebrate the challenges that have come before and like what that means for me now, you know, especially coming off the heels of, of the moment right before the one you're talking about and what Maya is talks about in that moment and like where she gets to and where she's thinking about and like why it's so important to her to tell this story. And to tell it in our minds, at least from Ropi and I, she's told this story a thousand times. And why does she keep telling this story? You know, what is it about it that she keeps going into it and keeps trying to figure it out and keeps trying to think through it and how it connects to her and why it matters to her so much um, or why it matters to them so much. And it's, I think like that for me, and if I think freedom might be a part of it, you know, if we equate freedom like in a capital F way and like all the things that it, that it, we can associate with that. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's right. 
I don't know if you had anything to add, Morgana. Yeah, so um, one thing that I love is that, um, and I don't know if it's just because of the great writing in it, but even in any of the staging written in, it just feels like a song in the way things move and flow. Um, and, you know, Beto Amaropi put in uh, Sam Cooke, who I always call the second narrator <laughs> beyond Maya, <laughs> to really drive um, the play in a beautiful way. And it's, you know, the way that they move through life, meaning Richard and Mildred, you know, it's messy. And when I have them dance on stage, it's just like, I want it to look like as if you're watching your parents or you're on an uncle dance, nothing like real choreographed, kind of mm -hmm. messy, just fun. <laughs> and like you see Maya enjoy moments of dance and Kobe Calhoun is a phenomenal dancer and choreographer. And so I just wanted all of that element of fun that, um, you know, is fun is freedom. You know, when we lower our inhibitions and, um, I think that the loving see that when if, you know, Mildred turns on the radio to Sam Cooke and wants to dance or Richard asks um, Mildred to dance or sings her a song. It's all this form of comfort and freedom that even if they're in a moment of restraint or discomfort, uh, that musical element lends itself to a, a moment of fun, which is freedom, which is letting go and just having this element of themselves that they can share with the world and with each other um and yeah i can't wait for those you know who do plan to come to see the uh moment <laughs> that you mentioned that is unmentioned <laughs> so you can, everyone can have that sense of freedom as well i uh, i identify as filipina pinay texan because I, i've got the the texas pride which doesn't mean that i don't Criti criticize Texas here and there, but I'm curious how how is y'all's experience being in Texas or being in Dallas uh, or outside of Dallas? Did it influence or shape some of the decisions, artistic decisions that you've made tackling the the script or this story? I mean, I identify as 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 Tejano as well, you know. Um... But I also think to love something is to want it to be its best self, right? Just on that. Yes, of yes. Stuff, you know, like, because I grew up, I have deep roots on both sides of my family, on my dad's side from coming there from Ireland in the eight, late 1800s and my mom's side, you know, we talk about the fact that my mom's side of the family that um, we didn't, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed my family. That's how long they've uh -huh. been in Texas, you know? <laughs> and so like that kind of understanding and I think for me I think for me the biggest thing that about that is you know so I grew up in a very small town called White Oak Texas which is outside Longview and um, you know eastern Texas when you're that close to Louisiana and Arkansas is really culturally very deep south you know it has those elements to it and so thinking about what it was like in rural Virginia you didn't feel that different to me than what it was like in rural East Texas. And so in terms of like all the research I had done, even like geographically, if you look at like photos of, of Virginia, some people might contest with that, but I was like, this just looks like East Texas to me too. Like, you know, and so I think that ultimate really helped me understand a lot of what that is like. And then, you know, talking to my parents and talking to my, my grandparents and understanding, you know, 
the fact that they grew up in in a in a world where my dad still like very vividly remembers whites only water fountains and you know things like that and that segregation was alive and well when he was young and so that that world of it was was helpful in terms of being able to develop that side of it and then to understand kind of the mentality of someone like Richard who you know in many ways Richard is uh an amalgamation of both of my grandfathers in terms of personality and kind of he is himself and I and I use heavily the, his biography and what we know about his personality to craft him but there's also elements of of those two ancestors of mine who who mattered so much to me that I kind of did in honor of them too and so um like that was useful you know and they're both you know men from Texas and so you know that I think in that way it was really helpful, and I think also just the what what is interesting to me always is um, because you have to do or it's encouraged that you do the interviews locally. Um, what that brings out of the show, and Morgana can speak a little more detail about that because she was more heavily involved with the selection process and the creation of the interviews and things like that. But I was really, I'm always like blown away by what feels unique about that for each production and also what doesn't feel unique about that what feels universal and you know the whole there's so many elements of like growing up is mixed that so many of us have like we can just kind of have almost a shorthand of you know how many times you get asked you know like bone no but what are you really is like the one mm -hmm. we've all been asked yeah. but what are you really you know and then you get to go on that fun uh, roller coaster. I don't know, Maria, if you want to speak to the specifics of that or, or Yeah. Um, so even, you know, myself being a Dallasite through and through, Texas Dallasite through and through, um, we are not, though, you know, we're, it's a city. It's not without, like, its own gentrification, areas of segregation <laughs> and um, racism. And um, so that's why it's important for, especially for this play to be at the Bishop Arts Theater Center that's in the midst of change and gentrification in Oak Cliff. Um, and, you know, seeing who's, who comes, who stays, uh, who goes, uh, that's all important. And the people that were reflected in the interviews, um, like Beto and I are all biracial, uh, grew up in uh, Dallas or in Texas for the most part. And um, they all had, you know, that similar story of like what he was saying of what are you, who are you, who am I, <laughs> when you question, especially if you're like you grow up with a white mother, but you look like a black girl, um, or you have to live in a dual lingual type of uh, family, you know, where you may have been raised not to learn the language or to learn the language. and. Um, or, you know, your parents are immigrants from two totally different countries. So we had, um, and just coming to Texas, and what does that mean to be raised in Texas or to fear like, um, you know, deportation at any different time? You know, different people mentioned that in interviews about their parents and, um, you know, how they were raised in whiteness as a survival, you know, um, or like as a black person or just you know also being valued in both uh sides of their life and that it was beautiful because though my life is 
has been a black and white thing. And the story of Mildred and Richard is a black and white story. As you can see with Beto and the interviewees, it's not just a black and white thing. It's, you know, uh, the rights for everybody. And I think that though, you know, the play takes place, uh, Virginia and going to the city, you know, Dallas needs to hear it. There's so many people who have had to come to Dallas and, you know, just fighting for the right to live, or they've been here longer than many of the people in power and they're being uh, pushed out or not acknowledged. And I think this play brings awareness to that. Uh, when we talk about freedom of rights um, to live and love. Um, and so I think that was um, important for me to really bring to the table through the interviews and having everyone all of my friends are pretty much my friends. They're like authors, filmmakers, activists, things like that of different backgrounds and having these unique stories that are truly reflective of the South and this version of the South too, which is beautiful and opposite of Richard and Mildred in Virginia, but also leads on that idea of like the impact and the legacy of interracial marriage in the South. I think that's a, a great summary of the the themes in the show we're, we're about a time so i just want to encourage our listeners to go check out the show it'll be playing till february 23rd at bishop arts theater center morgana beto thank you all so much for joining thank us thank you Thanks for making the time break all the legs break all the legs up is Down, Left is Right is sponsored by the Shakespeare Everywhere Network. Shakespeare Everywhere supports artists all over the world in setting up their own theater company and provides marketing and ticket sales support, as well as helping bars, restaurants, and event spaces and booking shows at their location. Learn more at ShakespeareEverywhere.net.